0: So, uh, welcome everybody, hope everybody had a good um, Thanksgiving break. I know you all haven't had me uh, for a while, Um, but it's good to see everyone, at least those who are here. Again, if anybody is going through the RCIA process, either be baptized or confirmed, please make sure uh, that you sign up right there. Do we have anybody new today? Yes, sir, why don't you give me your name? Wait, how are you doing? Wait. Great. Ezra. Ezra, okay. Madison, Madison how are you doing? Nice to finally meet you, Madison. <laughs> and Jakarla. <Yeah>. So, <laughs> like good Catholics, everybody sitting in the back. Uh, I love it. <laughs> so, we are, we are almost done with the creed. Um, and so this is the penultimate creed lesson. We're going to be looking at Our Lady today and the Saints. Uh, I, I do, I have apologized before, and I have uh, want to apologize again for not being able to put all those links online. It, I need about like two or three hours to sit down uninterrupted, undisturbed to do that. However, I'm not uninterrupted and undisturbed while school is in session i'd have to move somewhere else so hopefully during the break i will have a morning that is uninterrupted or undisturbed so i can put that mental energy uh, into doing it Uh, but i did put together a lesson today this is another one that i am passionate about and i could teach five lessons on this but trying to condense it all into about an hour and a half is difficult so we're going to we're going to start this is probably the issue devotion to Mary and devotion to the saints, more than any other issue. Uh, and for non Catholics, certainly, particularly those of, let's say, a more fundamentalist background, and for those who are Catholics, struggle with devotion to Our Lady. Um, at one point, even up to, let's say, 1950, I mean, Mary was so central uh, to the devotion, the practice of, of Catholics, um, but it's simply not that way anymore. And, and I think there are a number of different factors as to why historical, cultural, theological, spiritual, I don't have time to get into that. But I wanna posit that besides any of these specific issues, the real problem or the real struggle that people whether it be Catholics or even non-Catholics have with Our Lady, is that she seems to be, or people think that she is, not human. She's so far above, she's so distant, she's so perfect, that she becomes almost unrelatable. Uh, She's more of an ideal or a picture rather than a real human being, someone that we can connect with. Now, this is true sort of on that devotional or, or even emotional level, uh, but for Catholics, or the Catholic perspective, she's like a super saint. You have your saints, who you're gonna talk about, but she's a super saint. And, and, and she's always praying, she's always very, very serious, uh, you've seen images of Our Lady, it doesn't look like she's joyful, she's just, she's from a different realm, and it's hard for us, I think because of our focus on the human, uh, and our focus on sort of this immunitism in the world, and how grace works to connect with Mary who seems so distant. But also too, and this would get into a much larger theological discussion for our Protestant brothers and sisters, this idea of some human being who is so special and so different and so holy it poses problems not only because of a certain idea in the early the early protestant reformation of this this egalitarianism you know you can't have priests you can't have nuns you can't have saints because we're all in it together we're all the same we're all on the same level but also this idea that God's grace could be so active to transform someone from the interior, that heaven would condescend to come down to earth in such a radical way, is something that they would have struggled with theologically and philosophically. So both of those things sort of combine, I think, lead to this idea that Mary is distant, she's unrealistic. Does this this resonate with y'all? I'm not saying that maybe y'all feel that way, but you can at least see why I think people do struggle with Our Lady. And so what I wanna to do today is I wanna be able to present to you pretty basic teachings of the Catholic Church on Mary and who she was and on saints and, and why we have devotion to the saints and Our Lady. But, but try to, while looking at basic dogma and teaching, try to look at Our Lady and the saints from a more realistic, relatable, human perspective. And we're not saying that we shouldn't have statues and icons and rosaries, but to be able to learn how to foster a devotion to the person of Mary, to saints who know who we are and are interested in our lives and who are not unattainable. And particularly for Our Lady, this is something that is, I think, essential to being a Christian. And I'm not saying that anybody in here has this, but one of the things that I do not like, nor do I not understand, is sort of this cavalier dismissal of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Uh, Well, I don't need that. That's not necessary. Uh, Why do you have all that devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary? It's not important. Whether or not at certain times in history, maybe devotion to our lady got out a little out of control or a little inflated, to dismiss the role of Mary, I think is is, is, is not proper nor is it logical. Now, granted, I come from a very Catholic family. We prayed the rosary as a family, even though that doesn't very really happen much today, and it really probably didn't happen much in the 70s when I was growing up, but we still did it. Uh, it's hard for me to understand. But I'm gonna give you a quote from Archbishop Sheen. Uh, sort what I think encapsulates this. Would you as a son have much regard for anyone who said he liked you, but who refused to speak to your mother? Well, do you think our Lord can feel any differently, particularly since he gave his mother to us on the cross? Uh, this idea, I'm only gonna speak to you, Jesus, but I want to have nothing to do with your mother. If you did that, if someone did that to us, we would be completely upset by it. No, we wanna focus on Jesus. He is our savior but our Lord wants us to know his mother and have that relationship with his mother because it is something that he had and something that was so important to him and that he wants to be able to share that with us, but also I think for us to be able to become more like Jesus, if Jesus had that intimate relationship with his mother uh, as a person, someone relatable, um, not as some sort of an image to worship or to, Again, we don't worship Our Lady, but some image so distant, um, he wants us to have that too. So I want to begin, and this is going to, again, I'm painting in these very, very broad strokes uh, to root our devotion to our understanding of Our Lady in scripture. Because the truth is, this is where we hear about Mary. Uh, we have all kinds of theological reflections as we're going to talk about different apparitions that have happened over the years. But we come to know about Our Lady mainly and only through Scripture, and so the sort of the, the main source is going to be in the Gospels, of course, particularly the Gospels of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. And so Luke gives us that first introduction to Mary in the Annunciation. Now, this is what I think was interesting. I was reading an article by Cardinal Ratzinger who said the focus that Luke puts on the Annunciation and Mary, and realize that Luke's gospel, as you remember, was probably written a little bit later. Matthew was written earlier that let's say 20 to 30 years, if not 40 years after Jesus, people were still talking about Mary. Our Lady was still important. She was still part of the the memory and the devotion of Christians enough to take up a couple of chapters. Then, it shows us that it was something that was important to the understanding of the early Apostolic Church, that she spent so much, he spent so much time. And of course, I could go through each little part, the Annunciation, the Visitation, and, and sort of pick it apart. But to show the deeper significance, here's Mary. We believe Mary would probably have been a teenager, 13, 14, 15 years old. Uh, she had not known anybody. She had not known, I mean, a man. She but she was engaged to Joseph, betrothed, but they hadn't lived together. And of course, God sends the angel and says, you know, we'd like you to be, God would like you to be the mother of the Savior. And so instead of commanding anything kind of makes an invitation and she responds with her fiat her yes be it done unto me according to thy will and so to thy word so the spirit descends upon her and this miraculous event happens where she begins to be the mother of god that through the power of the spirit she conceives jesus in her womb without being with another man and so over history and time, and we've been able to pick apart every little word in uh, the account of the Annunciation in Scripture, but it's that message, that, that greeting, Hail Mary, Ave Maria, full of grace. And the Greek word, you don't need to know this, is kakaratomene, which means to be filled with grace. Again, grace is something we've talked about a little bit. Uh, we're going to talk about it more when it comes to the moral life. But grace is a word that we throw around a lot. And there's all these different concepts of what grace is. But when we say that Mary is full of grace, or we say anybody has grace, grace is ultimately God. His life, his presence, uh, particularly in our souls. And so Mary was so united to, 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 to her son. Of course, then what happens? Mary goes to the visitation. She goes across the hill country to her cousin Elizabeth, who is pregnant for John the Baptist. Uh, we see Mary's selflessness there. Of course, there's a lot of theology there too, which we really won't have time to get into, but I'll point to some resources eventually um, that can, can, can let us see that. She goes and has birth, gives birth. Uh, Joseph does not divorce her. Uh, they have to get the flight into Egypt. So we see a little bit about Mary. We also see Christ's childhood as they're going to the temple, and he is lost for three days as he's talking and preaching in the temple. Uh, Mary and Joseph find her, find him. Uh, that's the last thing we hear until uh, Christ's public ministry. And then we see Mary second here outside of Luke and Matthew's accounts uh, at the wedding of Cana and the gospel of John. Remember we talked about Mary's influence on John and his gospel because Mary would have spent time living with John. Um, and we see there that the couple runs out of wine. And Mary is the one who notices it and goes to Jesus and says, Lord, you know, Jesus, I want you to do this for them. Help them out. They ran out of wine. Jesus first says, you know, my time has not come, but ultimately does what Our Lady says, or asks, and works this great miracle. This passage can sort of act as a basis for our understanding of Mary's intercession, that she goes to Jesus on behalf of us, when we run out of wine to ask Him to work for us. But it's Jesus who's ultimately the one that does the miracle. Throughout the rest of the Gospels, we see Mary mentioned a couple of other times. And finally, it is there at the foot of the cross with John. Where Jesus looks at John and Mary and says, Woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. Basically, giving John over to Mary as uh, her son. Uh, this custodian that he's going to watch over Our Lady, and of course there's deep symbolism there. And the last time that we see the Blessed Virgin Mary in Scripture is going to be at the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, it's not in the Gospels, because she is present there praying with the Apostles um, when the Spirit descends. And so you see with Luke, who wrote the Acts of the Apostles in the Gospel, what happens at the very beginning The Spirit descends upon Mary and she brings forth Jesus in her womb. And at the beginning of Acts, what happens? There's Mary again. Would you mind closing that door? The descends upon Our Lady who is present with the apostles and, of course, the church is born. So you see Our Lady present there. Uh, Again, I would spend a whole class just looking at Mary in the New Testament. But we can also see Mary foreshadowed in the Old Testament. I don't remember giving this talk, but I obviously did. It's called Finding Mary in the Old Testament. Um, And I'll put this online where we can look at different things in the Old Testament that foreshadowed Mary. Of course, you know the prophecy of Isaiah, the virgin uh, will bear a child. But we can see also uh, Mary's connection to Eve, that she becomes the new Eve if Jesus is the new Adam. Adam. Number of mothers in the Old Testament. Mary could be seen foreshadowed in them. Uh, Israel as a whole, um, the figure of wisdom, the image of a daughter Zion in the Old Testament, plus a number of others, particularly such as the Ark of the Covenant. That's the one that I think is the most interesting. Um, the Ark of the Covenant, of course, is the, the thing that held the pieces of the Ten Commandments, some of the manna, and the rod of Aaron. Well, if we look at Luke and in Revelation, Mary is depicted as that Ark of the Covenant uh, because she holds Jesus in her womb. Um, but again, we'd have to go uh, more into that, but you'll see all the relevant scriptural passages. And so we can see foreshadowing of Mary in the Old Testament. Again, we could see it the very, very beginning, and I think that's the important part of Genesis 3.15, the, the, the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. Um, and that, what we call the proto-evangelium, after the fall, um, he will strike at, you will strike at her heel, but she will crush your head. Um, foreshadowing, uh, of course, Mary and Jesus, who will, of course, destroy uh, the power of Satan in the world. But again, I hate to be rushing through all this, but at least we can kind of know the origins of the biblical concept of the Blessed Virgin Mary. But over the years, or over the centuries, we as Catholics, like we've done with the Eucharist, like we've done with the Trinity, like we've done with the Incarnation, you saw that, our theology, our understanding of Our Lady has developed. Uh, We've deepened it. We've got a better concept of who she is. And there's been a a theology and a certain four teachings that have developed about our belief in the Blessed Virgin Mary. Particularly, we formulated four dogmas, or the four essential teachings about the Blessed Virgin Mary. So besides the stuff in Scripture, which of course roots everything, and particularly roots these dogmas, there are four that we're going to have to look at. And this is going to be essential for describing and understanding Mary uh, from at least a theological um, and spiritual perspective. The first is Mother of God, the Greek word Theotokos, the god-bearer. That's kind of the official Greek title. And so you know, this should be pretty commonsensical, like, hey, She's the mother of Jesus. Jesus was God. Therefore, logically, she's the mother of God. But this was a real struggle in the early church. The, the, the heretic Nestorius basically said that Mary, we call her the Christokos, the, the bearer or the mother of Christ, because she was only the bearer of the humanity of Jesus. How could she be the mother of God, because God is eternal? And so, of course, this sparked theological debates. And then it was in the year 431 at the Council of, who remembers? No. We talked about it. Ephesus, the Council of Ephesus. It was on that list of the, four, the seven councils that the, the Cyprian described her defined her as the mother of God, the Theotokos. Why? Because if Jesus is God and Mary gave birth to Jesus, therefore she is the mother of God. Just as if you are the president and the, let's say, you know, Donald Trump is the president. Well, his mother is the president, the mother of Donald Trump. Donald Trump is the president, therefore she is the mother of the president. Because Jesus is God. Doesn't mean that God is not eternal but we can call her the mother of God. And from that, we've come to understand her as the mother of the church, as our mother, the importance of that maternal role of Our Lady. Um, and also you can reflect on that on a human level. The mother of Jesus, what that relationship was like, how tender, how beautiful it was, even though I think a lot of the times we make it so distant and abstract. The second basic dogma is the perpetual virginity of Mary. Now, this is one that is a big struggle for uh, many of our brothers and sisters who are not Catholic. As Catholics, we believe that Mary was the virgin before birth, during birth, and after birth that she maintained her virginal integrity. Now, Why are we such so a big deal about that? And Carmen Ratzinger does a, a good job of explaining it uh, because we as Catholics and Christians believe the body matters. And so if all of a sudden, somehow her integrity did not main- be, be maintained intact and there wasn't some deeper symbolism there, then, in a certain sense, we could say, well, biology really doesn't matter. Again, virginity is in the heart, that's that purity in the heart, but somehow the body does matter. And that by our Lord passing through uh, without destroying any aspect of Our Lady's body, not only shows the miraculous nature of the birth and how special it was, uh, but also the integrity of the body of Our Lady and the importance of biology and and the human body. But without getting into that, which is a pretty complicated um, topic, the real reason this becomes an issue is because of the belief or the teaching that did not exist in the early church, that Mary was not a virgin because Jesus had brothers and sisters. We see in a couple of occasions in scripture, that it seems to refer to these brothers and sisters of Jesus. So, if Jesus had brothers and sisters, how could Mary be a virgin? Some have posited, well, because they were Joseph's kids and they were adopted. I don't know if I'd actually buy that argument. Uh, The argument that you hear most of the time, to sort of refute this, is in the, the time of Jesus and the Jewish and the Aramaic and Hebrew language, There was no specific word for cousin. Everybody, brothers, sisters, cousins, you use the same term, the same word, possibly because these families were so intermingled. But I think there is a better and stronger argument for that. And it goes to Jesus on the cross, when Jesus told Mary, behold your son, son, behold your mother. Jesus would have been, even if he had brothers and sisters, the eldest son. Again, if he had any brothers and sisters and they would have died, maybe you would have heard about that. Or if they were completely distant, well, man, are they, were, they were estranged from the family? Well, we got some problems there. Maybe you can call into question Mary's motherhood. But most people would agree that, at least at the time that he was on the cross, uh, you know, there were not, his brothers and sisters were not there. There's no mention of that. Um, So, but even if they were the question comes if they were, why did Jesus have to give or choose to give John to Mary? Because Mary would have been a widow. We know Joseph wasn't around and if he had brothers and sisters, they would have had the obligation to take care of Mary. Because what happens is the widow, you had to provide for the widow and usually it was going to be the eldest son who did that. And so if Jesus, who is the eldest son, is dying, well, then who's going to take care of Mary? Well, if Jesus had other brothers and sisters, it would have fallen upon them to do it. But because Jesus gave John to Mary as her son, it was his responsibility to take care of the widow who had lost her only child. Does that make sense? And John wasn't a relative. Yeah, John wasn't a relative. Uh, Does that make any sense to you all? For me, I think that's the the, the clearest cut argument of why Mary was still a virgin and Jesus didn't have any other uh, brothers or sisters. But again, we could get into that a lot more. The third teaching or dogma is the Immaculate Conception. Now, these first two dogmas were developed very, very early in the Church. But it wasn't until 1854 that this was defined uh, clearly as a dogma, a teaching of the Church. Again, this is something infallibly taught, that we as Catholics have a responsibility and a duty to believe. Now, is this something that we can find evidence in the early days of the Church? Yes, although there was certainly a dispute about it if you studied the origins of the Immaculate Conception. But basically is the teaching that Mary was conceived without original sin, which means, we talked about original sin, she was conceived in the state of grace, in perfect union with God. And therefore, as a result, she did not have a tendency towards sin, nor did she ever sin in her life. She was always in perfect union with the will of God. How did this happen? Well, the theologians had to work it out. It was probably in the 15th century or 13th, 14th century uh, that Blessed John Don Scotus, a Franciscan theologian, understood that because Jesus died on the cross— and one, the grace for our redemption and our salvation, because that, that grace of the cross exists outside of time, that God can take it and apply it beforehand to Mary to make her sinless. And the other logic that flows from that quite often is, well, if you were going to make your own mother or get the chance to make your a mother, wouldn't you make her perfect? Absolutely. And so the Son of God, knowing that he was going to become incarnate in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary, had that ability to make Our Lady perfect. Some will say that Eve was the prototype of Mary. Uh, Mary is that perfect Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies, so that she could bear uh, Jesus in her womb. Now, one of the things that I think we can tie to this, one of the questions I get is, you know, does God love Mary more than anybody else. Now, why is Mary holier than anybody else? And I think one of the ways you can talk about this is the capacity to give, but more importantly, the capacity to receive love and receive grace. Let's say that I have one of those cups over there, plus I have my big thermos, and they're both filled to the top with water. Which one is fuller? Neither. They're both filled a capacity. However, one has a greater capacity than the other. And so we could say because of Mary's sinlessness, because of her lack of attachment to the world, lack of attachment to sin, she would have naturally or supernaturally had a greater capacity to receive love and to receive God. And therefore, because she could receive more, she allowed herself to be loved more. Although I think better than some sort of a static container, we might use the idea of a balloon that continuously expands. The more water you put in, the more air, the bigger it gets. And so Our Lady, continuously, because she was filled with grace, allowed her heart, allowed her soul to expand uh, to receive the Lord's love. And therefore, I'm going to say that she was more loved because she had that greater capacity to receive love. Um, and I think it teaches us something about our own attachment to sin. When we become attached to sin, we rest, don't respond to grace. We limit, we constrict our hearts in a certain sense, and it's a capacity and willingness to receive love and grace. And so this was, of course, defined in 1854, and there's a much deeper theology to this. We're going to be celebrating that that, that feast of the Holy Day of Obligation uh, in the coming week. Again, this is going to be difficult for people to understand, The Immaculate Conception is not whenever Mary conceived Jesus in her womb. That is not it. She was the conception when her parents, Joachim and Anne, conceived her. From the moment of conception, she was without sin or the tendency to sin. And then finally, the Assumption, which was declared a dogma uh, in 1950, although there's belief in this from the earliest days of the church. What's the greatest evidence? As we're going to look. Catholics have loved relics. We like the arms and the heads and the bodies of saints. <laughs> Not in the history of the church has there ever claimed to be the body of Mary or a physical bodily relic of Our Lady. In the early days of the church, we believed that she was assumed into heaven, body and soul. What does that mean? All it really is is the early share in the resurrection. Uh, she her body was resurrected. She didn't have to wait until the very end. And so the declaration of the Assumption is sort of like a canonization of Mary, where she's sort of made officially a saint, even though, of course, she is considered the greatest of all saints. And we're going to talk about it a little bit next week, but one of the most interesting explanations of the Assumption that I've ever heard, it comes from Carter Ratzinger, of course, I like to quote him a lot, as you know, um, he talks about sin, and when we sin, we sort of connect ourselves through guilt to other people on earth. And so if I've sinned against you, Briley, who i never sinned against, she's too sweet, if I sinned against Briley and I died, well, even though Briley may have forgiven me, or maybe she didn't forgive me and there's still something, we're still connected in a certain way by that guilt. And so a soul that's weighed down with guilt, particularly the people still on earth, It's like a balloon that can't rise because there are all these ropes tying it to the earth. And so you'd have to cut them in order to be able to float to heaven. This is the explanation of purgatory we're going to talk about next week. Mary had nothing. She had nothing to tie her to earth, no guilt that bound her to anyone else. And she had great love for God, so she was able to float up. Not on her own, of course. Jesus, of course, would have pulled her towards heaven because there was no guilt to tie her to earth. Now, I have some sheets that I will hopefully upload to give background for all of these four dogmas. Um, Is it possible there may be other dogmas about Our Lady, these concrete teachings? Uh, Yes, there may come in the future. Of course, the church could be around for billions of years. But these for us are essentially, dogmatically, what's important for understanding Our Lady. Does that make sense? It's expanding your mind a little bit. I'm trying to I could give you a lot more rigid explanation, but I want to try to make it where people can understand it. The question, though, comes is, well, Father, this is all great, but in the early church, there, there was no reverence for the Blessed Virgin Mary. And that's an argument someone would make. And you've heard me say that before. We as Catholics believe that our faith is apostolic, that what we believe we can trace back to the apostles. And we could see in sort of germination and growing in the early centuries of the church. Not necessarily exactly as we understand it today, but the seeds are there. And so can we find evidence of devotion to and belief in the Blessed Virgin Mary in the early church? And the answer is yes, we can. Uh, I'm gonna give you a few brief little points to think about and to look at. Uh, the first is this. We can pass it around. This is the earliest known image of the Blessed Virgin Mary. It is in one of the Roman catacombs, the Catacomb of Priscilla. Hopefully, we'll be able to see that when we go to Rome. I, I can't promise you. It's Mary nursing Jesus. Can you see that? And so, this is an image there dating from about the year 170. Again, does this show that people were praying the rosary back then? No, not necessarily, Uh, but at least it can show that there were artistic representations of Our Lady. Ten years later, we see one of the great church fathers, Irenaeus, write about Our Lady, particularly as the New Eve. Uh, Hope to put a link there uh, where we have this long sort of theologically complex understanding of comparing Mary to Eve, another sign of the devotion and theology that happened. Here we're talking about the second century very, very early on. Uh, a few years later, about 60 or 70 years later, probably in the year 250, we see what we know is the earliest Marian hymn or the earliest Marian poem. Call. And we're going to. I'm going to give you the Latin, even though it's originally found in Greek. Sub, to, pray, sidium Basically, beneath or under your compassion, or your watchfulness, or your 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 protection. Uh, it's a Greek hymn, even though it was originally used in the Coptic Church in Africa. We can date it back to 250. And it's a hymn that is still used in the church today, which in English says, Beneath your compassion we take refuge, O Mother of God. Do not despise our petitions in time of trouble, but rescue us from dangers, only pure, only blessed one. So here we have some Marian hymns in the third century. Again, I think some evidence at least, of devotion to Our Lady. And then one that you don't hear a lot about, but I remember hearing about it uh, when I took a trip to the Holy Land. In Nazareth, they have, you haven't even been to Nazareth, they believe they've uncovered the, the home of the Blessed Virgin Mary, or at least what was believed to be the, blessed, or the home of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And as people have always done, they have found graffiti it dates back to the earliest days of the church. And one of the, the pieces of graffiti they found is what they call the Kyrie Maria. It's in Greek, which is basically Kyre Maria, Hail Mary, or Ave Maria. They don't know the exact date, but they know it dates before uh, the year 431. And so what would have happened, arguably, uh, someone would have conned the pray there and would have typed or written in with a little pen or whatever, their knife, uh, Kyrie and Maria, Hail Mary, as a way to show the reverence and devotion they had for the Blessed Virgin Mary, even at the earliest days of the Church. So, again, you could do a lot more research and see a lot more of the iconography and writings of the Church Fathers but even though, again, it has not as developed as it came later on, particularly in the Middle Ages, the early church did have devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary. So to say somehow we shouldn't have devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary, or images of the Blessed Virgin Mary, when they had it in the early church, uh, does not show that continuity. I want to kind of finally wrap up a little bit of this idea of Marian devotion by looking specifically It's certain aspects of devotion to Our Lady. This talk, I guess, is more apologetic rather than theological. Apologetic meaning not like I'm apologizing for loving the Blessed Virgin Mary, but apologetics is the defense or the explanation of the faith. Doing it mainly because this is one of the areas that a lot of people who may be coming into the church haven't learned about or haven't understood. And so normally, One of the first sort of main devotions that we have to Our Lady is the Hail Mary. We know the prayer of the Hail Mary. Why do you pray the Hail Mary? Well, because it's scriptural. Hail Mary, full of grace. Where does that come from? Luke. That is the the greeting of the angel. You're simply repeating the words of the angel. The Lord is with you. It's also from the angel. Blessed are you amongst women. Well, that comes from the mouth of Elizabeth at the Visitation, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, Jesus. Also from the Visitation. So the first half is just us repeating Scripture. The second half, Hail Mary, full of grace, Lord, be blessed among women, blessed the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, talking about Mary, is basically Saint Mary, Mother of God. Repeating this dogma, pray for us or intercede for us sinners, which you could tie back to what. John chapter 2, the wedding of Cana, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. At the hour of our death, why? Because Mary was there at the foot of the cross, of the death of Jesus. And so because Christ is our brother, we want her interceding for us there at the hour of our death. So there's nothing to freak out about when it comes to the Hail Mary. It is rooted in scripture and rooted in tradition. Now, of course, the Hail Mary is a prayer essential to the prayer that most of us know, the devotion most of us are familiar with, the rosary. Um, Again, the historical roots of the rosary. Some will say probably that it began uh, with the monks, because the monks back in the day had to pray in one day all 150 of the Psalms. And so they had a chain of 150 beads they pulled down so they remember what psalm they were at. And then, either through historical evolution or possibly we believe, to be uh, an apparition to Saint Dominic, uh, that, that tool was used as a way to meditate on the life of Jesus, the mysteries of the life of Jesus. And so as Catholics, it used to be, Three sets of mysteries, now there are four, all focused on meditating the life of Jesus: the joyful mystery, the annunciation, his birth, and whatnot, the finding of the temple, the what we call the luminous mysteries like the transfiguration, uh, the Last Supper, uh, the, 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 the preaching of the kingdom, the sorrowful mysteries that deal with Christ's death, and then finally the glorious mysteries deal with the resurrection and with the Pentecost and with the assumption of and queenship of Our Lady. But basically all the rosary is, is using the Hail Mary and these different prayers. I don't want to say as mantras, but as prayers that we use to calm ourselves down, to show devotion to Our Lady. But the real core is not the saying of the prayers, but the meditating on and the focusing on the life of Jesus. And so there are these different scriptural rosaries and things that we can use, uh, images to be able to uh, meditate on scripture. But I think what's so crucial about it, why is it the rosary? Because we are wanting to see and understand the life of Jesus through the eyes of Mary. Remember, Mary still has her memory in heaven. She remembers what Jesus was like, she knows Jesus better than anybody. And so that if we go to Mary and say, hey, teach us about your son, and then through prayer and being with Our Lady as we meditate on each of these different mysteries, yes, we're focusing on Jesus, but we're trying to access Mary's memory or have her help us better understand the life of Christ, just as she better helped John understand Jesus. So again, Mary is always there, never taking the glory for herself, but always pointing it to Jesus. From that, another thing that has become popular in the church is what we call Marian consecration, where we consecrate or we set ourselves apart under Our Lady's guidance and protection. This comes really, became more popular through a saint called uh, St. Louis de Montfort, a St. Louis de Montfort, who wrote this book, the most important Marian treatise that we have, called True Devotion to Mary, where basically he said, if you want to conform yourself to Jesus... The best way to do it is through Mary. Mary was the one who raised Jesus and formed him. So if you go to Our Lady and you consecrate yourself to her and say, Mary, I want you to form me to Jesus, bring me to Jesus, she will. Again, it's never focused primarily on Mary, even though in the minds of some people it might be, but it's always to get to Jesus. Recently, there was a book written called 33 Days of Morning Morning Glory, which is a, kind of a modernized version which draws from the writings of John Paul II, Maximilian Kolbe, and Louis de for it, uh, to help us prepare for that Marian consecration. Again, you're consecrating yourself to Mary, but only that Mary brings you to Jesus. Now, when it comes to weird Catholic stuff, Mary plays a very central role. And one of the big things that, again, I wish I had more time to talk about would be Marian apparitions throughout the history of the church. There have been a number of claims that Mary has appeared to different people to give messages. The three probably most famous ones. First, in the 15th century, Guadalupe, when Our Lady appeared to St. Juan Diego um, in Mexico. Again, everyone was pagan basically at the time there. uh, And she wanted a shrine built. But the Bishop, Zumarraga, wasn't very convinced and so she, Mary, uh, had some roses that Juan Diego put in his tilma, which is a cloth, to bring to the bishop. And so when he did, he opened it, but what was happening, there was imprinted on the cloth this image of Our Lady of Guadalupe. When you walk out in the hall, you'll see it. Uh, this miraculous image that still exists today. Um, we have no evidence, it seems, that there's any paint on there. There's a lot of theology behind it uh the stars the belt um again i don't have time to get into it but i can point you to some resources that can help you better understand that miraculous image and then within like one generation bam mexico converted everyone converted Uh, and then child sacrifice died Uh, there was a complete transformation So probably one of the most famous apparitions that we have something remaining from, even after 500 years, that hasn't deteriorated is Guadalupe. Then you go to uh, 1854, we have uh, 1850, I'm sorry. Actually it was 1858, I'm getting my dates wrong. Um, You have Lourdes, when our lady appeared to uh, St. Bernadette Subaru, a small, poor woman, a poor girl, uh, living in sort of southern France uh, and then through that apparition there were some weird things that went on there, uh, there was a grotto where water came forth and now millions of people come from all over the world uh, to, to find healing, uh, there have been a number of, of miraculous cures that have happened there, now there's a big beautiful shrine, there are pilgrimages and processions that happen every night, uh, and a lot of devotion there. And, of course, probably the most famous, 1917, Fatima. uh, Fatima, Portugal, where Our Lady appeared to three shepherd children. Over the course of six months, uh, culminating on October 13th, this miracle of the sun that was witnessed by, I think, about 100,000 people, where the sun appeared to spin in the sky and almost come to the earth. Now, there's been some interesting stuff written on that, because, as we know, the sun can't do that. Because it's not in the sky, but yet everyone in the group perceived it to happen. How did that happen miraculously, we don't know, uh, but it is an approved apparition. Uh, As I think I've said before, this is what we call private revelation. When the church approves one of these apparitions, all it's saying is it's credible to be believed. You don't have to believe it, nor do you have to believe what was said in it. Although, uh, the church does a pretty serious job of investigating to make sure that everything in there is true and would not lead anyone astray. That's why, like Medjugorje, some of you may have heard, has been going on since one. That has not been approved. That will ever be approved. It's been going on for almost 40 years now. I don't see them being able to parse through all of those messages people can still go, and there are many healings and miracles that come from there, Uh, but it is what we call private revelation. Public revelation, remember, happened uh, during the time of Christ up until uh, the the death of the last apostle. And of course, Mary has inspired uh, so many uh, devotions throughout history, and probably no other saint, certainly another saint, is depicted as much as Our Lady in art. Um, We can see Another you know, know, the beautiful Pieta, Michelangelo, the different icons, and, of course, the beautiful churches like Chartres Cathedral, Notre Dame, and Paris, all dedicated to the Blessed Virgin Mary. And so, uh, sort of trying to, to wrap this up a particular break, we know that, uh, as we talked about a couple of lessons ago, that Mary is that image of the church. And we can tie it back to Revelation, the woman clothed with the sun. Uh, that she is the image of the church, who is our mother, the feminine dimension of the church, uh, and and how important Our Lady is for a proper understanding of the church if people are going to come to accept and enter the church. But I'm also going to say, and we'll kind of wrap it here, that devotion to Mary, which has very much waned since Vatican II in the 60s, if we're going to see a renewal in the church, we're going to have to see a renewal of devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Uh, Certainly the rosary and different apparitions, but I'm going to put a link to a retreat that I gave on this where we come to see Mary not just as theological constructs or a symbol of the church, but as a person who is alive and who is real and that we can relate to in prayer. I'm not saying don't pray the rosary, but that we can, in the same way we approach Jesus in prayer, approach Mary. And so I think that a new, renewed devotion to Mary is going to have to focus on her humanity and understanding, like we see her in Scripture, but you know, Mary smiled, she laughed, she joked, she had faith, there was darkness, there were trials, there were struggles. To see the humanity of Our Lady, particularly when we meditate on the the mysteries of the Rosary, also, again, developing that personal relationship to know her, to love her, that she's not just an image and we're praying these rosaries and these novenas, but really to relate to her as a person. And then finally, most importantly, is probably her femininity, Uh, to understand Mary as a woman, to understand her as a virgin, and to understand her as a mother. And I think it's important in general, if we're gonna see a renewal of the church because of the importance of our Mary as Mary an image of the church, but also ushering in, I think, sort of a new understanding and appreciation for Mary and her immaculate heart uh, is that image of her own purity. But I think with all the crisis that we've been hearing about over the course of the past few months, uh, Mary shows us the importance of the role of the feminine in the church are more women involved, there's a good chance this may not have happened. Uh, can't, there could be counter-arguments to that, but I think a deeper appreciation and understanding of the role of women in the church and femininity, uh, particularly in the, 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 the model of Our Lady, can help to really bring about a renewal of holiness in the church, which is ultimately the most important thing. Father, it, uh, it seems to, to me that an argument can be said about what you're saying of, of having a more incarnated uh, 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 idea of Our Lady as mm-hmm. that means of uh, uh, um, the power of her, her devotion being based on that uh, with Our Lady of Guadalupe. I mean, the, the, the missionaries, the, the Franciscans, the Jesuits were not as uh, 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 successful in, in proclaiming the gospel up until the apparition, and she came looking like one of them. Well, like one of them. And leaving a concrete thing that you can touch and see behind. Mm-hmm. So it is even more incarnational, correct. So I think Guadalupe really does set the tone, particularly here in the Americas, for our devotion to Our Lady. But again, what does it look like lived out? I don't really know. It's gonna be different in different areas, but it's something that we can pray about and, and work on. So we're gonna take a little break, and then we'll come back, give me 10 minutes, and we'll wrap it up by looking at devotion to the saints and some angels and demons. So, uh, was did did you learn? Did that teach you anything new about the Blessed Virgin Mary? Yes. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. I mean, I, I I would love to teach a class on Mariology, which is the study of Our Lady. Uh, but only one class I can give. So yeah, find the time for me to do that. That'd be a miracle. That'd be a. That'd be a good. So. Our Lady, as I said, is sort of like the ultimate saint. Uh, we want to talk a little bit about saints and devotion to the saints is another thing that, that uh, is, I guess, essential or very important to uh, Catholic belief. And so, I guess the question is, what is a saint? Saint, basically, is from the Latin word sanctus, a holy person, a person set aside. Uh, and you can give a number of different Definitions for a saint. Taught of the technically one is one who lived a life of heroic virtue, uh, someone who is a great disciple or follower of Christ to a fantastic degree, uh, one who was a living image of Jesus. I mean, these are people, humans, who yeah. radically live the gospel. But, you know, you can also say that a saint is anyone who's in heaven. But today we normally call a saint someone who's gone through the process of canonization. And we're going to get to that a little bit uh, later. But there was always, in the beginning of the church, devotion to the saints. Uh, not worship, but devotion to the saints. And we have clear evidence that it wasn't just about Jesus, it was about Mary, it was about the apostles. And it was about people who radically conformed themselves to Christ. And for the early church, uh, we see evidence of the tombs of the apostles, particularly St. Peter's tomb, that uh, there were people there who would go to pray and show reverence for the tomb of St. Peter and ask for his intercession. But in the early church, who epitomized holiness? conformity to Jesus, particularly in crucified in the early church. Who knows? What subset of people? The martyrs. The martyrs. Those who died for Jesus. Those who died for the faith. Particularly in the early Roman church when the persecutions began, as I'm sure you remember from what the Father was talking about in the year 64, uh, and then ran about the year 312 thousands upon thousands of Christians slaughtered, crucified, eaten by animals, murdered, and many of them buried outside of the city in Rome and the catacombs. And so there was for the first centuries devotion to those saints. People would go and pray at uh, the tombs of the saints, particularly the martyrs. But after Constantine became emperor, what happened is they wanted to bring the devotion of the saints into the city. And so you began seeing the relics of the martyrs brought into the city. And often, sometimes, they didn't know to bring the relic of just about anybody they thought was the saint. Obviously, you know, there was a lack of sort of understanding of that. And so you begin seeing popping up within different churches... Images, icons, altars, relics of saints. One of the greatest, and we're going to go to Rome. My favorite, one of my favorite, the Church of San Crisogono. You can go to the underground basilica that has been excavated, 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 and you're going to see. We'll be able to see. They made like a mini catacomb, where you would walk through the tunnel until you finally came to the shrine where the relics of uh, Saint Crisogono would have been, and you could have maybe put your little napkin there, your little piece of cloth to pray at and touch the relics. Uh, and so this idea of bringing the bones of the martyrs into the city, the old pantheon for the Roman gods, pantheon meaning all the gods, if you've been to Rome, that beautiful construction of the city was a pagan temple. But the early Christians brought all the relics, these truckloads basically of relics, of the, and buried them under the ground there, So now the church is called Santa Maria ad Martire, St. Mary on top of her at the martyrs. It's also important, though, because it shows us, for the early Christian, it wasn't like, oh, there's a pagan structure, we have to destroy it. No, this is a beautiful building, and so we're going to transform it from within. We're going to baptize it. And so this has always been that Catholic impetus, the impetus of the Incarnation, there are certain things. Certainly, they're evil. You're not going to go and baptize a pentagram necessarily, or stuff that is satanic. You know, the pentagram isn't necessarily satanic. Uh, but these pagan structures, so these pagan things like Samhain or the solstice, you can take and you transform them from within. You don't cast them off. Just as God became man and transformed us from within. And so from there, devotion to the saints grew. There wasn't a formal canonization process uh, at that time, but in different areas. They knew this bishop, this nun, this person was holy. Most of the times in the early church, there were bishops or religious or priests that were considered, even though there was a belief, not necessarily developed as we have today, that lay people could also uh, be holy, even though we have a lot of martyrs, young boys and young women in the church gave their life. But it was really in the Middle Ages where the real cult of the saints began to develop with relics and people traveling four distances to Vezelay, to Compostela, Veselay for Mary Magdalene's relics, Compostello for James the Apostle's relics. Uh, how they got there, it's a long story, uh, but people traveling many, many miles for months, if not years. Canterbury to go pray there at the tomb uh, of the saint. The Canterbury Tales, of course, is they're walking and telling little stories. That's what it's about. Uh, all of it, this cult of the saints, statues beginning to comp around churches, paintings and images. Even though you can see paintings and images of saints from the earliest days of the catacombs, uh, that on the frescoes there, on mosaics that date back to the fifth, sixth century. This idea that the the early church did not have reverence for the saints, both the men and women, and the early church is something which is completely ludicrous, uh, but it's, it's sort of put there and thrown on the art and a lot of the architecture. But what happened was is over time, we had to develop a more concrete uniform way of declaring who was a saint is because somebody in france and the little towns of this person was a saint how do you know what are the standards so it wasn't until i think it was with the 1600s if I'm getting my dates correct with benedict 14th uh that the the formal process of canonization of saints came about where it had to go through rome uh again i'm not going to have the whole time to explain the whole process but basically someone dies we believe this person is holy information is gathered about the life of this saint, uh, this person, and basically submitted to the Vatican to be reviewed, you get testimony, uh, Then ultimately the first stage, there, there's a number of stages, but the big stage is becoming a blessed, then you can be canonized a saint. Uh, there needs to be miracles before uh, to become a blessed. If you're a martyr, you don't need a miracle. Uh, but then you need a miracle, at least a second miracle, to become a saint now. It used to be you need to three miracles to become a saint, but of course the church has changed that. They use a lot of science to make sure that the miracle that you prayed to that saint, you went to that saint's shrine, and you believe it's through their intercession that a miracle happened. Uh, we are one of the unique dioceses where a miracle that got someone canonized, St. John Burtman's, happened. Uh, that young nun who was sick and dying, and grand coteau, she prayed to John Berkman's, He appeared to her, and she was healed. And you actually go to the shrine of the room where that miracle took place. And then once everything is reviewed and approved, even though there's a process where there was this devil's advocate, I don't think they use the devil's advocate anymore, where he would argue against the sanctity of the saint in order to be able to try to really make sure that you prove through this process that the person was a saint, that the person was holy. Um, And then if it's approved, in fact today I think there was a second miracle for blessed John Henry Newman. Uh, So he'll be a saint pretty soon. There is a canonization process. And if it's a big saint, you know, it'll be in Rome, there'll be a big mass, and hundreds of thousands of people will come. I remember I was there for the beatification of Padre Pio. There were a gazillion people for the the canonization of Mother Teresa of St. John Paul II. Uh, Of course, there are different local saints and saints from different orders. Uh, But it shows that, that personal holiness is possible. And over the years, of course, there's been a different understanding of what holiness is or what a saint is. But basically, one of the, the talks that I give is that Christ calls us to be saints, not superheroes. And we can read the stories and the legends, particularly of the early saints who, like, basically came out of their mother's womb praying a rosary, or, you know, when they were three, they were curing the sick, and then they, you know, fasted all their lives, or they had the stigmata. And so, all these, these tremendous things, well, we begin to equate that with holiness. But well, what really happened, I think, beginning with St. Therese, who's a little flower, and hopefully we'll have the time to talk about her as we look at more of the saints in the 20th century and John Paul II, and we find holiness everywhere, that you don't need to work the miracles to be a saint, little things done in love, understanding your own weakness, living out spiritual childhood, living your state of life, you could be saints. And so now, you know, we have lay people who are saints, religious men, women, children, Uh, tons of different saints, particularly that John Paul II made. And so what happens is, too, I think it's important, is that we can see and know holiness that is contemporary, not just St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Catherine of Siena, who lived forever ago, but saints like Chiara Luce Barano, who basically is two years older than me. She lived in Italy, got cancer, died, offered her life, and was this beautiful, young, holy girl And, I mean, she's basically my age, uh, but yet she's a blessed of the church. Maria Goretti, we have photographs of saints, of Pierre Giorgio Frassati, who the young people love. Um, The the sanctity is real, it's holy, it's contemporary. And it's human. Uh, Saints are not perfect. They struggle with their own imperfections, but, but responding to the Lord's grace and developing a life of prayer, they allowed grace to transform them. Of course, some died as martyrs, Uh, many led a normal life, but in the day-to-day tasks, knowing Christ, praying, and loving others, and sharing that love with others. One of the things that I love talking about is the humor of the saints. We have a lot of evidence, like Blessed Francis Xavier Silos, Saint Therese even, had a sense of humor. This idea that sanctity is, I'm just praying all the time and I'm in a dungeon, somehow, (laughs) doing penance, no, it's not how it works. Sanctity is real. There's humor. There's reality. In fact, I mean, Saint Teresa of Avila said, "You know, save us from sour-faced saints." That's the worst thing. <laughs> Think of the holiest people you know. You go visit, like the Carmelite nuns. I'm sure they have bad days, but those sisters are joyful. They're holy. That's the sign or mark of true holiness. And that the call to holiness is not just for a certain few. We're all called to holiness. And we're all called to be saints. We're all going to be different types of saints. I'm not going to be the same type of saint that that Juan is. Juan's not going to be the same type of saint that Jada's going to be. The Lord calls us differently. We're all different facets on this one big diamond. And the light refracts through it in different ways. Granted, we're going to need to suffer. The Lord's going to have to purify us. it is by living heroic virtue, being conformed to Jesus, and focusing on the one thing that matters. one thing that matters is love, uh, loving God and loving our neighbor. Now from that, you know, we as Catholics have the cult of the devotion to the saints, and devotion to Our Lady. Why do you pray to the saints? Why do you pray to Our Lady? Why can't I just go straight to Jesus? And this is an argument that a lot of people make. And for me, again, I just don't understand it. Uh, There's something so human about seeing holiness incarnated in others and wanting them to assist and to help us. The reason we ask our lady to intercede is because our lady interceded on behalf of the couple of Cana. But I mean, I know a lot of people that if they say, well, I don't pray to the saints, I don't need to pray to Mary. Well, have you ever asked anybody else on earth to pray for you? Well, of course, I want you to pray for me, or I ask my uncle to pray for me, or friends to pray for this. Well, if we have no problem asking others to intercede for us, why would we have problems with the Mother of God and the saints who are in heaven praying for us? I think it comes down to the word that people say Catholics pray to the saints. No, we don't. Catholics pray to God. We will pray and ask for the saints to intercede for us. we do not offer worship to the saints. We offer, in the technical term, dulia, and to Mary, hyperdulia, which is sort of reverence and devotion. Y'all are holy. Y'all are the brothers and sisters who went before us. And you care about what's going on on the earth. I mean, this is what, again, I don't understand. Like, the saints are in heaven, we worship God, we don't care about anything going on on earth. No. They care about us. And they want to see us get to heaven. And so we can ask for the intercession, never worshiping them, but that's why we do it. We're all one church, with the church triumphant, with the church suffering, and we're the church uh, militant on earth. We're all part of the one body of Christ, and we still have communion with the saints and they're interested in us, and so fostering devotion to the saints is important. Can it get superstitious? Yeah, but just because somebody eats too much sugar doesn't mean you ban sugar. There can be abuses, but it's something which is good in and of itself. And certainly devotion to the saints is good in and of itself. Now they it's okay, fine, Paul, we can pray and ask the intercession of the saints. And so you have different patron saints. And over the years, uh well, you, you may have Saint Thomas Aquinas is the patron saint of theologians. He's also the patron saint against storms and lightning. You know, and usually I would love to write a book if I time to do the research of why certain saints are patrons of certain things. Anybody know why Thomas Aquinas is a patron saint against lightning and storms? Because he, when he lived in a castle when he was growing up, back he lived in the castle back in those days in Aquino, uh, they didn't have windows. And there was a storm, and a lightning bolt went through and hit his little sister and killed her. Uh, as a result, he was afraid of storms for the rest of his life, pretty logically, and didn't like lightning. So now he's invoked against lightning. Granted, this kind of stuff can get superstitious, but you know, St. Christopher for lost things, St. Jude uh, for, I don't know, St. Christopher for travelers, St. Anthony for lost things, Um, but there is important. There's one quote, I forgot where it comes from, you know, devotion to the saints. We don't choose the saints, but the saints choose us. Uh, There may be saints in heaven take particular interest in watching us and guarding us. Uh, Different countries can have saints, different localizations have saints to show. Uh, how different holiness is, but that we are still connected. But people say, well, okay, I can understand asking the intercession, but why why statues? Why all those images of saints? That's worship, that's idolatry. Well, again, we saw it in the early church, they were putting pictures of Jesus and images of the saints and they were not worshiping them. Uh, granted, we build a statue, we have a statue. some people may, Think that you're worshiping it, but Catholics are not. It goes back to the incarnational aspect of our faith, that, hey, I have the image of the saint, I have the picture, or the icon, the statue. It's something very material that reminds me of who they are and my connection to them. I mean, how many of you have loved ones, living or deceased, that you have photographs of them at your house or on your phone? And you look at them and you think, "Why, I really miss this person, or I-, I can't wait to see this person in heaven one day. Does it mean you're worshiping them? Should you get rid of all images? No. It's that concrete connection that we as Christians and Catholics have to people who have gone before us. And so when you're lighting a candle, you're not offering some sacrifice to the saint. No, it's an incarnational thing, showing devotion and and asking them to intercede for us, to watch out for us. Uh, Again, could be perverted, by people wanting to worship saints or whatever, but that's certainly not at all the desire. So to have images, to have pictures, our homes are surrounded with that. One of the best arguments that I've ever sort of seen for this is, you know, the church is not a house, but a home, the physical building of the church. And what makes a house into a home? It's gonna be those things that we have from our family. Pictures, images uh, are, are something that was there from our grandparents, a piece of furniture that has been passed on. It sort of humanizes it and makes it a home. And so in the same way, when you walk into the physical church, the images of Jesus, the pictures of the saints, the relics, the things that we can touch, uh, those are all things that connect us to our history, our past, to those we revere, and kind of turn the church from a house, a house of God, into a home. It personalizes it, uh, and it makes that connection. So again, so much more the devotion to the saints. So important, asking their intercession, uh, showing us as that great family of God. And when you, those of you who are getting confirmed or baptized, you're going to have your patron saint. We're going to talk about how to choose that, uh, a saint that you may have devotion to, or you think a saint that has chosen you. Wrapping it up, we talked a little bit about it, about angels and demons. Again, this would be something we could talk about all day long. We believe they're divine persons, human persons, but also angelic persons. Before God, created man, he created these spiritual beings uh, we call angels. Angel, technically means messenger. Uh, and they're there to serve and worship the Lord. Uh, but what happened is, the the the, the the story goes that this idea of the incarnation of God becoming man to save mankind uh, was proposed to this plan this divine plan to the angels and some of the angels chose to say no. But with angels we believe in our theology because there's they don't have to reason through things. They automatically make a decision. They can see everything in front of them. Once they make up their mind, the mind is made up. It's like your spouse once their mind is made, their mind is made up, they're like your three year old child. You're not going to change their mind. And so you had a certain set fall, the fallen angels who become the demons. Uh, and so now we have angels and we have their different hierarchies of angels we believe. St. Michael being the greatest angel, uh, the archangels, there are seven of them that are there to serve and do our, God's bidding. Each human being has a guardian angel assigned to them, and no, you cannot name your guardian angel. The guardian angel has existed for a very, very long time, way before you existed. The angel has a name. It already has a name. You can't name it. When we die, we do not become angels. We're going to talk about that next week. Uh, but we, we're interacting. Angels are... There's a spiritual battle going on around us, the spirituality that we're often not aware of, that there are indeed angels among us. But what people tend... I could say, hey, i am giving it a talk on angels. Three people will show up. Hey, i am giving it a talk on demons. Oh, it'll be packed full of people. And again, The Theology of Evil and Hell, we'll talk a little bit more about it, but these are the fallen angels who are generally miserable creatures, uh, but hate humanity and, and and hate Christ and want to take our souls and bring them down to hell. We're going to talk about what hell is or where hell is uh, a little bit later on, or how hell can be eternal. Um, and they're real. The evil is not some sort of a nebulous sort of thing. It's personal. There are personal beings who want to destroy our souls. Should we be scared of them? No, we shouldn't, because we believe Christ is one. And, you know, of course, we have our blessed water, our blessed objects, our sacramentals we'll talk more about later. Uh, and if we're living in a state of grace, we got nothing to worry about. Will the demons tempt us? Yes. Every little bad thought you have is a temptation from the demon. No, it's not. Uh, But there is that war waging. So if we're going to look at uh, history as a drama, you're going to have the antagonist be Satan and his minions. And yes, we do see throughout history uh, the reality of what we call possession, that certain people can be given over to basically having their beings inhabited by demons. Uh, And there can be some pretty grotesque things that do happen. And therefore, the church has a right of exorcism to exorcise the demons. Only priests can do it who are deputed by the bishop. Uh, It can often take a very, very long time. Um, I'm sure many of you know of or have seen the movie The Exorcist. Is it exactly, exactly precise? No. But it's better than most of the other garbage that's out there. I think the book, not the movie, The Right by Matt Baglio, R-I-T-E, where he goes and sort of investigates this exorcism school, and he's not even a completely secular individual, but comes to really believe that this is more than psychological. Uh, it can be very, very convincing uh, that, that, that demons exist and that we are at war. Have I ever done an exorcism? No. Have I ever witnessed one? No. Do I ever want to be involved in that? No. Generally not. Uh, but it takes priests who are very, very holy. But it does remind us of that, that spiritual battle. But we've got to believe that holiness is possible, that Jesus is one. So, wrapping it all up, this lesson on Mary and the saints is so important. Again, another essay from Ratzinger, and one that I think I've already maybe shared with you all. He talks about if we're going to see renewal in the church, truth and apologetics people are very rarely convinced by their reason anymore, I don't think. What convinces people is beauty, more importantly, what convinces people is holiness. They see a holy person, they see a saint, they see someone living it out, and that is what changes minds and hearts. And so, I could teach you all about being saints, and the importance of having devotion to the saints, but it's not just for us to study. It's for us to become saints and to really strive for that. Now, how does one become a saint? Well, we're going to talk about that later when we talk about the moral life and, and prayer. But it really is, to, you've got to understand, you don't make yourself a saint. You can't will it yourself. We can be virtuous. We can do good deeds. But it's Christ who, through us, uh, makes us saints by helping us produce fruit um, and fruit that lasts. And fruit ultimately needs to be crushed turned into wine. So there's got to be suffering and all of that. But we'll talk a little bit more about the spiritual life. So that is Hagiography hey which is the study of the saints and Mariology the study of Our Lady in about an hour and a half. Uh, there's a lot more we can do. But we're going to wrap up and then we'll go and have our little uh, time together. So let's close with the glory be to give praise to the Trinity. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. As it was the beginning is now and it shall be or without end. Amen.